0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 18 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I'm your host, Miles Taylor, and we are doing this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners and also streaming on Apple and Spotify. Today, our guest is Robert Mahoney, He is the current executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. He is someone who writes and speaks regularly on press freedom and has led CPJ missions to global hotspots from Iraq to Sri Lanka. Robert has worked as a reporter, a bureau chief and editor for Reuters all around the world. Robert, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Miles. I'm very happy to be here.
0: It is it is great to have you, Robert, because I, I think today people on an almost day-to-day basis when they're reading the headlines, uh, two things are occurring to them. One, it seems like people who support press freedom are sort of under assault around the world from this surge we're seeing in authoritarianism or or what feels like a surge. But also I think folks aren't realizing how much harder it's getting to actually deliver those news stories to them from the front lines in some of these places. So, of course, top of mind is Ukraine. I'm I'm curious to hear uh, what does this crisis look like at the moment from a press freedom standpoint, given that uh, you all are really on the forefront of that?
1: Yeah, well, in in Ukraine, I mean, obviously there's a a war and um, already at least seven journalists have have died since the uh, invasion in in February. And it's become a very uh, difficult war to, uh, to report because um, journalists have, um, have, you know, not been able to get access safely to the front line, but they want pictures, they want, uh, they want audio, and so a lot of them are, um, a lot of them are exposing themselves to, to great danger. And it's very difficult to get uh, factual information from the Russian side, so they're confined to uh, reporting from the Ukrainian side. And it's it's uh, it's the first time uh, for many that they've uh, covered a war uh, in the heart of Europe.
0: I, I want to ask you, Robert. Uh, first, before I dive into that a little bit deeper, what type of work does the committee to protect journalists undertake to help make sure that the folks that are trying to report from the front lines, especially of a war of a conflict like this, are getting what they need? To get out there and to do it safely, uh, you know. I, I also want to ask you a lot about the work that you do elsewhere in the world. But immediately in a conflict moment like this, how does CPJ step in?
1: Yeah. Well, well, we're just background there. Uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists is a nonprofit uh, organization uh, based in New York that's uh, been around now for 40 years, uh, helping journalists, helping to protect journalists using reporting and the tools of uh, journalism to um, report on press freedom violations and then advocate for the journalists that are affected. Um, so as soon as uh, the Russian uh, invasion had started in February, we were uh, mobilized to provide um, information, to uh, safety information, to journalists that were going there. It tends to be freelancers that they're not working for big organizations that have in-house Security experts or access to, um, you know, um, training and equipment. So one of the first things that happened was that Ukrainian journalists who found themselves plunged into the middle of the of a war, um, did not have protective equipment, did not have training. So we and partner organisations t- tried to rush to them, protective equipment. By that I mean, you know, um, anti. Uh, anti ballistic vests uh, to protect them from from uh, shrapnel and bullets, helmets, uh, or, or, uh, first aid kits, all that kind of, of uh, physical stuff. Um, we were able to help with some training because if you've never covered a conflict, you need some basic training about how to go about it. And then um, there is the digital component for safety because a lot of journalists expose themselves to danger by being surveilled, tracked you know, they with their phones and other devices. So all that was in a, in, in a great rush to get that done for Ukrainian journalists because there are a number of Ukrainian journalists who were uh, used to covering, covering conflict and they were there from 2014 when Russia invaded the east of the country. But the majority weren't. They were, they were just ordinary uh, reporters and suddenly the conflict was all around them. They were in the middle of a war zone. And um, they needed our help. Then, coupled with that, we had an exodus of Russian journalists. After Putin clamped down on the press in Russia, some 250 independent Russian journalists had to flee, and we had to help them. So it was a, it was a mega crisis involving several countries, and it all, it all happened very quickly. Talk to me a
0: little bit, Robert, about the digital threats that we are seeing to journalists you know, at the moment in places like Eastern Europe and Ukraine, where they're trying to report on the conflict. But a lot of that extends more broadly. I mean, you have nation states that maybe otherwise would not intimidate journalists, but now have the ability to infiltrate their personal devices, find their sources um, and really uh, invade their lives in a way that they previously couldn't. How how are you seeing that right now in the conflict zone and, and, and more broadly? What episodes of that are you seeing around the world?
1: Yeah, this is a huge and growing problem um, for us as citizens, but for journalists in particular or anyone that's doing sensitive investigative work like human rights defenders, uh, war crimes investigators, etc. cetera. Basically, uh, we live with, on our phones now. Everything is there, um, our, our professional lives, our personal lives and it 's also a tracking device with its, uh, with its GPS capability. the existence of this technology has been a great boon to journalists. We, uh, journalists have been able to broadcast live from places which just you know two decades ago would have been impossible it 's leveled the playing field it, uh, a, lot, a lot of freelancers can now do journalism uh, whereas a few years ago the technology was either too expensive or non-existent and you had to be part of a big uh, news outlet. So that that that's the benefit of the technology, but the downsides of the technology is that it allows for pernicious surveillance. It allows for state or other actors, could be criminals, to follow you, to access your phone without your knowledge. And uh, you know, there's a great example here. There's a there's a company in Israel called NSO Group, which. Um, manufactures a software, a spyware called Pegasus, which can be put on your phone without your knowledge. And it can turn your microphone off and on, it can turn your camera off and on, it can track wherever you're going, and you, you do not know that that's happening to you. And um, now, NSO denies this, but um, there's, there's lots of uh, evidence out there that this particular kind of uh, software, Pegasus, was uh, used by the uh, Saudis, for example, to track dissidents and uh, including uh, uh, the um, uh, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered, as you'll remember, back in uh, uh, 2018 in the um, Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. So there is a uh, there's a record of this um, software being used um, in a battlefield situation. You know. Uh, Journalists do not want to be tracked by people who might wish them harm. So uh, they have to be very careful that um, they are not uh, giving away their position to somebody that that, uh, might not want them there, witnessing and recording what what that side is doing. Uh, Journalists also have to be careful uh, when they return from reporting because what we see increasingly is that border guards, authorities, police, Will seize uh, a journalist's devices and download the content very quickly. And if if you are returning from uh, covering uh, the rebel side, for example, in the civil war, and you go back to where you came from, uh, and you have pictures of uh, rebels, um, you can be uh, you can be arrested. And this happens uh, for being a rebel sympathizer, for example. That that's happened in e- in Ethiopia. It's very easy for governments to get hold of that stuff now on our phone. Even in the United States, we have had lots of cases, and we've uh, uh, gone to the federal government uh, about this, of border agents uh, stopping journalists and taking their devices from them at, uh, at border stops. And, and the journalists won't know what's happened. There's a technology manufactured by another Israeli company called Celebrite which basically can extract in seconds everything that's on your phone. All, all, all you need to do is take the phone from the the owner of the phone, say at a border stop, and you stick this device in it. A few seconds later, you give the the iPhone back to the owner, but everything that was on that phone is now in your hands. And so journalists have to be incredibly careful about how they store information on phones and other devices, how they travel, um, because they can get not just themselves into trouble, but they can get their sources into trouble. I mean, everyone that you talk to is going to be on that phone. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, I I also would be remiss if I didn't ask you, Robert, about your book, which I'm going to do in a minute. You, You recently released a book on what we see across the world as a growing pandemic of misinformation. And your book is called The Infodemic. Before we jump into that, let's drill a little bit deeper into these issues of spyware that you note, know. I mean, that's a real concern for journalists, some of this NSO spyware, uh, the Celebrite technology that's used to get into phones. But as you know, that, that's a concern for anyone. And today, um, you know, journalists don't just wear a badge and say, I work for Reuters or the New York Times. You know, folks can podcast from anywhere, report from anywhere, the, the whole field of journalism, in a sense has been democratized and spread. And so you've got your average citizen can now sort of act in the capacity of a junior reporter, if you will, but also be subjected to these searches. So what, what is your advice to citizens and truth tellers and, and journalists out there um, who are working in these realms trying to report on information but whose information could easily be compromised digitally. Uh, you know, wh- wh- What do you tell those folks? And, and also, what services do you provide more directly to some of those people on the uh, front lines that are reporting?
1: Yeah, well, my first piece of uh, advice would be to go to those resources that can tell you what you should be doing. And that you go to cpj.org. We have um, a whole... Uh, suite of uh, information and safety products uh, that are tailored to specific areas may, where you may be working, whether you're w- whether you're working covering protests or covering conflict, and how you can best protect yourself uh, digitally and, and online from intrusive uh, surveillance. One of the some of the many things that you can do, of course, is to have burner phones, to not take your main phone which contains all your personal and other information with you on an assignment. You uh, you can either download all that and then wipe the phone clean and take that with you or preferably get a burner phone, which is pretty, um, pretty clean. That way, if the phone is confiscated or it is tracked or infected, there's not such a great uh, amount of information that you can give to the other side. There are lots of other things that one can do, but um, my, my My advice to someone starting out in um, in journalism or in, in doing some kind of what I might call citizen journalism or or, or even research would be to go to, to the uh, committee to protect journalists site There are many other good sites too, and you can get this basic we call it just basic digital hygiene and these are habits that you have to you, you have to inculcate it 's like brushing your teeth you need to do it every day you need to check on. Uh, What you're storing and where you're storing and and how secure it is because this is really one of the main threats to journalists now and We've noted that out of the many journalists who are murdered every year for their work It starts often with them being tracked and surveilled and followed Before it comes to something uh, in in, in the digital world before it comes to real online uh, physical harm so Do that. Be aware that the phone in your pocket is your friend, but it can also be your worst enemy. How are
0: some of these companies being held accountable on this question? You know, I've seen NSO Group and others go out there and publicly say, look, our technology by and large is used for public safety. Um, Certainly that's credible. I can say from having been in government that some of those companies are absolutely deploying those tools to go catch murderers and terrorists and dangerous figures but the misuse of those technologies is deeply disturbing and clearly there have been episodes of that as you note you know we've seen journalists killed around the world because those technologies have been used by authoritarian states to hunt them down uh how do you uh put pressure on these companies to police that and can they
1: well we've put you put pressure on it by doing what we're doing now which is talking about the um the, the phenomenon, reporting on it, um, mobilizing um, uh, coalitions within countries to insist that their governments um, uh, put controls on the export of, of, and use of these technologies. And the Biden administration earlier this year uh, did put uh, NSO on a, on a blacklist for s- certain exports. That, I think, is a, um, is a small victory but it requires constant vigilance. I mean, these are dual-use technologies. As you say, you can use these technologies to prevent um, a, a crime or an act of terrorism, but we see, for, we, we see them being misused. And NSO will say that they sell them only to governments and that governments uh, use them responsibly. But in the case, they sold it to Mexico. But we found this Traces of this Pegasus spyware on the phone of a a journalist with whom we worked quite closely, uh, Javier Valdez, who was murdered five years ago this weekend. Um, So, the um, the assurances of the company don't always pan out in reality because this technology is so um, enticing, right? Because it's so good at uh, at at what it what it does, and um, we, we we've seen. An increase in surveillance, and you, you mentioned COVID and the pandemic. And I've just, uh, you know, co-written a book about um, how uh, surveillance was used um, under the guise of, uh, of, of combating a public health emergency, and the legacy of that is going to be with us for quite some time.
0: Well, let's get into that because you know, we, look, we've talked about the physical threats to journalists, which are very real. The digital threats, incredibly real and can lead to those physical threats. And then there's sort of a third vector here, which is just the actual information that journalists are trying to get. Uh, it's getting harder to get to the truth because nation states, uh, transnational criminal organizations, others are sort of mainstreaming misinformation, spreading lies and trying to confuse the information environment in all sorts of cases. And, but there's really no better modern example than COVID-19. So you and uh, your predecessor at CPJ, Joel Simon recently put out a book called The Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. Tell me a little bit about the book and the uh, case study that you're exploring here.
1: Yeah, the, the, the book uh, looks at the first uh, year, year and a half of, of the pandemic from the point of view of information how governments around the world used and tried to control information to uh, deal with the uh, the outbreak of this disease which no one really knew what it was for many months you'll remember and there were they were they were panicked and so we look at how both authoritarian countries and democratic countries used information to cover up either their incompetence or to put out a narrative that they were on top of what was uh, emerging as uh, one of the biggest threats to public health in the century. And for that they used censorship. And when I say censorship in this context, it's actually, um, I'm looking at two sides of the same coin. We're all familiar with silencing, censorship of silence, where uh, a, a government will uh, seek to control the flow of information, could be Soviet-style style censorship where you have control of all the broadcast media, you seize print runs of newspapers if they come out with something that you don't want, or you take down websites. We're all, we're all aware of that uh, form of, of, of censorship which has been around for many years. But in in the in this new tech, uh, technological age, we're awash in information. There's information flowing everywhere, and no government, even even the Chinese government, can possibly control all information. So they uh, we we explore what I would call the flip side of the silence con, which is uh, censorship through noise. That's to say, where you flood people with so much information, misinformation, propaganda, lies, that they, they end up not knowing what to believe, and then you, you privilege your narrative over anyone else's. And that's what we saw happen here in the United States or in, in Brazil, for example, where you know, there was just so much bad information out there in the first part of the, um, of, of the pandemic, and it was used in a way to cover up the fact that the government wasn't dealing with it very well. So we, 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 look, we, we look in the book at uh, studies uh, in China where the outbreak first occurred um, and through other authoritarian countries like Iran and, and Egypt and all the way then through to India and, uh, and, and the United States on the democratic side. And no one form of government fared particularly better than anyone else. It was a, it was a disaster at the beginning for everybody.
0: When we look at the consequences, uh, you know, I think historically we could say misinformation often results in the spread of conspiracy theories or a confused public. COVID was a really acute example of how misinformation can result in deaths. And probably you could conservatively estimate that at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, died because of misinformation that was spread about the pandemic and how it was transmitted or vaccines. What takeaways do you have from this episode for how we prevent this from happening next time, whether it's another pandemic or another global crisis uh, where misinformation can mean human lives?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a critical, it's a critical point. And when we talk to, epidemiologists and, and virologists, it's not a question of whether we get another pandemic but when, because um, it, it's, uh, it's on the cards that there will be more uh, outbreaks of, of, uh, of global disease. What, what we need is the ability to provide citizens with accurate information in a timely manner to enable people to make informed choices about... Um, how they are going to react to a to a threat and then governments can try to compel people for example to observe certain public health uh, restrictions it could be quarantine it could be mask wearing it could be social distancing that may work in a highly uh, authoritarian society like china even though people are balking now in Shanghai at being locked down for a month. That may work there, but it's never going to work in the United States. And so what governments have to do is they have to convince people. They have to, uh, they have to nudge people into taking um, actions which benefit the public good for the short-term cost of what we here was framed as individual liberty. And what happened was that there was a, a, uh, a breakdown in the communication of that information. There was no debate about it. And so there was no trust. And this is one of the big takeaways um, uh, from this last pandemic, is the undermining of trust. And we have to rebuild that trust. And What do I mean by trust? I mean trust in our institutions, in our sense-making institutions, like the media, like the public health agencies, like the government itself, that trust has been eroded to the point where people just won't believe uh, what, uh, what's coming out of the mouths of, of, uh, of experts. People attack Anthony Fauci, for example, or they politicize mask wearing. That's not a place where you want to be when there's a the next pandemic.
0: The response to this, the response to the explosion of misinformation around the world on social media has been to try to figure out ways, like you just noted, to combat it, to stand up disinformation operations, to shine a light. Um, One of the things that I worry about is that the actual effort to try to combat disinformation is now, ironically, being fought with disinformation. So we, <laughs> we we have this threat, this infodemic, as you know, there's, there's fake news, if you will, lies being widely disseminated. We see it everywhere from elections to pandemics being a threat. Governments rightfully are trying to figure out how to swat down that misinformation. Here in the United States, we have plenty of experience with the Russian federal government, for instance, actively promoting misinformation about our elections. And so The agency that I used to work at, the Department of Homeland Security, stood up something called the Disinformation Governance Board to focus on thwarting especially foreign interference and disinformation campaigns. Incredibly, within weeks of that being stood up, it's become a political flashpoint with many Republicans now here in the United States saying that Joe Biden has stood up a ministry of truth uh, to, you know, put its thumb on the political scales. So what do you make of this, that the actual tools to fight disinformation are being subjected to disinformation? This feels like a next-level inception problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, I come at at this uh, issue from the point of view of having been a journalist all my professional life and an advocate for press freedom and try to see this in the United States context, at least, uh, within a, a First Amendment uh, framing. And it is not, um, it, 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 you have to be careful when you are trying to control speech about the harms that you're do, you, can, you can do. There could be unintended consequences. The European Union is battling with this. The United States, Canada, Australia, everyone is trying to regulate speech online, whether it's to protect children from uh, harm, whether it's to uh, protect uh, public health, and oftentimes the um, the solutions that are proposed either are too broad and risk chilling speech or are not even necessary, uh, because there are other ways through criminal law, for example, of going after child pornographers, do you need to do you need to uh, introduce laws which are so broad? that they will shut down what you and I would regard as uh, maybe awful but lawful speech. Um, So we're we're battling with this problem all the time. I do not have uh, easy answers. Neither does anyone else, from what I can see. But the problem problem lies, uh, in in the end, in the amplification and the speed with which these lies are uh, sent around the world. the algorithms that privilege certain forms of speech or certain speakers over others. That's, that's the black box that we're staring into in some of these social media companies. So you could, you could, you could argue that one way of uh, countering this, this, this uh, disinformation is to slow it down, to put more friction between it and the end user. How you do that, that's the big question that we're all tackling with.
0: We recently marked World Press Freedom Day uh, about two weeks ago. I I think you could look back at the 20th century and say uh, pretty compellingly that one of the most significant developments was the spread of freedom around the globe. Um, Forget the light bulb, forget the airplane. You know, in in the year 1900, only one or two countries in the world met Freedom House's standard for a competitive, multi-party democracy. It's just a couple of countries in the world. By the year 2000, the majority of the world lived under democracies. You know, you've Got to see that as a massive, extraordinary development, if not the most significant development of the 20th century. But since the turn of the millennium, it seems like we've seen a great deal of backsliding. I mean, I mentioned Freedom House, a partner organization I'm sure that you all work with closely. They've notched some pretty significant declines in freedom and and note very bluntly that it seems like free societies are under threat, that freedom is in some ways in retreat. Uh, When it comes to world press freedom, are you seeing similar trends and on anniversaries like World Press Freedom Day? How do you characterize the state of uh, press freedom globally? And, And what do those trends look like?
1: Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Freedom House and other organizations that track um, civil liberties and democratic values, um, it's been 15 years of continuous decline. Um, Another institute based in Sweden called the VDEM Institute says basically that all those gains that we made since uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89 have been lost. We're back to where we were in terms of the numbers of uh, democracies in the world We've, we've lost 30-odd years, and they reckon that like 7 out of 10 people on this planet now live in countries that are not completely free or not democracies. So that's the backdrop against which all this is, uh, is taking place. And it's no surprise, therefore, that press freedom would reflect this because journalists need a functioning society in which to operate. We need uh, functioning institutions, rule of law, courts that work, uh, governments that promote press freedom. The moment that those pillars underneath journalism are knocked away, you see we get what happened in Russia under Putin from 2000 onwards. So it's becoming more and more difficult for journalists to do their job in lots of parts of the world, either access to information is, is is restricted, um, or the um, the in, the state becomes hostile to the work of journalists and actively seeks to undermine them, either through you know uh, we, we, as we talked about uh, disinformation and delegitimizing them, or all too all too frequently jailing them and killing them. Um, the last five years have been some of the worst that uh, CPJ has tracked, and it's. 40-year history for the jailings of journalists, uh, some 300 every year. That's a very conservative estimate, uh, physically in jail because of what they've uh, reported or written or broadcast. And um, then in terms of, um, of, of uh, casualties, killings, I mean, this this year alone, 2022, has been incredibly bloody. Um there are at least 17 journalists who have been killed in this, the first few months of this year, and that figure is, is quite conservative. We're still looking. We think there are 30 that have actually died, and we're trying to confirm that they were killed for their journalism. So we're off to a terrible start. And the reason for this is, uh, as you said, a kind of a democratic recession, a shrinking of the space for uh, people to exercise personal autonomy, their civil liberties, to speak their mind, to go where they want to, when they want to. And when I say um, speak their mind, that could be physically <laughs> in the street or um, more and more on the, uh, in the public square that is um, social media. And some of the biggest countries in the world, like China, with 1.4 billion people, and now, some uh, is now an incredibly strong surveillance state um, that is completely uh, can wall its citizens off for the rest of the world if it wishes to behind the great firewall and then use the tools that we saw it use during the pandemic, that we're seeing it use now in, in Shanghai of uh, CCTV, uh, camera surveillance, uh, facial recognition software. And all other kinds of surveillance equipment to make sure that people's every move, every.
0: Uh, I I lost you for just one second there, Robert. But sorry. Point point taken on China, and I, I. It's extraordinary. To watch, because I can remember in government 10 years ago getting reports about the Chinese exploring and experimenting with the use of artificial intelligence to help track people. Uh, And now it's just a pervasive reality. And it sounds dystopian. It sounds Orwellian, but it's just everyday life there. They're, They're now doing massive deployments of highly sophisticated technology to track everything you do. And not just if you're a Chinese citizen, you can be a tourist and go visit China and have every move if they want to very closely tracked and monitored. That uh, I think is very chilling when folks think about the future, not just of press freedom, but of civil liberties. Um, We could probably do a whole day talking about what's happening in these repressive countries. I do want to ask you what your concerns are in the West. You know, if there is a democratic recession, clearly most of that is happening in regions of the world that are slightly less developed than Western democracies, countries that have started to democratize and then backslid. Uh, But we're also seeing many of these warning signs in the world's oldest democracies. Um, Even here in the United States, if people can put politics aside for a moment. Uh, We recently had a president of the United States who said on more than one occasion, and not by accident, that the free press was, quote, the enemy of the people. What concerns do you have when you look at even Western governments, the places where we supposedly have the greatest press freedom? What trends are you seeing there? And what should folks be aware of?
1: Yeah, there's there's some worrying trends there. Uh, you referenced the enemy of the people quote, which with its Stalinist chilling overtones, uh, the rhetoric has improved uh, in the last in the last year or so. But there are still some problems, and um, one of them is access to information. Uh, they're, they're still very difficult to uh, get hold of. Uh, information, which is actually the right of the public to know a lot of the information that the government collects. We, we, we see that um, more and more information is being classified and putting it out of the public realm, and we believe that a lot of that classification is unnecessary. Um, one of the ways that journalists get hold of government information is to file requests under the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, we've noticed that uh, more and more of those uh, uh, requests are either denied or they're slow-walked or they're s- when it comes out, the information is so heavily redacted as to be useless. Um, so there is a way of um, government uh, constricting the, the, the pipeline that brings information from what it is doing to the public via journalists. Um one of the things that, uh, that does not happen in most Western democracies is the jailing of journalists. But what has happened, since, uh, particularly since the Obama administrations, is the jailing of journalist sources. The governments have gone very heavily after whistleblowers and um, sends a message that if you talk to the press, um, if, if you, as, a, as, as an employee of the government, have something which you believe is in the public interest for the public to know, you risk uh, you know, losing your, 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 your liberty. And so that's been a trend. Um, use of very, very um, draconian measures like the Espionage Act in the United States, which was an act that was uh, put into, uh, into law in 1917 as a measure against um, uh, spying during the First World War. That's been used, uh, again, since Obama and through Trump Uh, to prosecute um, uh, potential sources of journalists, whistleblowers. So we're making, you know, we're using very, very heavy tools. Um, All these things uh, mean that um, access to verifiable information is more difficult. That's one side. And then to go back to what we've been talking about, you know, propaganda, misinformation, we have seen over the years the active uh, use by government of uh, lies and propaganda to bring uh, the to put its its narrative out there and bring um, society around. You need to go back no further than the Iraq War and what the Bush Cheney administration did in order to convince uh, Americans and then the rest of the world that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, using um, planted stories in the New York Times and all other forms of um, of manipulation to uh, you know uh, get get what it wanted. These are the, the techniques that uh, journalists in the West have to um, have to combat by doing good old fashioned shoe leather reporting, getting out there, getting to sources, tr- getting multiple sources, trying to find out the truth through asking questions and putting aside opinion and uh, presuppositions, which is uh, there's plenty of opinion around, right? There's the the airwaves are full of it. What 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 we need as citizens in order to make informed choices is more factual information.
0: Well, Robert, uh, I'll ask you uh, an intentionally provocative question that I suspect you'll dodge. And that's perfectly fine. But I'm going to ask it anyway. All of these issues are coming to the fore in the past few weeks, uh, in some ways around the discussion of uh, billionaire Elon Musk looking to take over Twitter. You and I are both users of Twitter. Many people are users of Twitter. There's a lot of strong opinions. Uh, I I wonder, one, the question that I think and suspect you'll dodge, what you think of Elon Musk's potential takeover of Twitter, but two, more importantly, um, what do you think are the compelling reforms and proposals you've seen around social media to address this whole slate of ills from the spread of misinformation to the targeting, tracking and intimidation of journalists and sources. A lot of it all comes down to the interconnectedness of our world and how we can approach that. I wonder if you've seen novel proposals and solutions discussed. I know this is a topic uh, de jour at the moment, and but frankly, one of the most important topics when it comes to the stability of free and open societies. So first, maybe I'll try to pin you down on what you think about Elon Musk's Twitter takeover, but, but second to that bigger question, what can we do about all of this uh, that we see online?
1: Well, um, I don't need to dodge that question because Elon Musk this morning himself has just cast huge doubt on whether he's going to go ahead and take over Twitter, saying that um, uh, It's on hold, which looks like it might not happen. So I think that uh, that point may well be moot. To the the broader point, um, it is disturbing, I think, to me, that um, so much power is now vested in private corporations to determine uh, what it is we see and when we see it. And there are good people, and I know them, within those corporations who share some of my uh, concerns, and they are trying to uh, address some of these problems. But let's let's be honest, their their very um, business model promotes the kind of you know it's it's enraged to engage. So people. Uh, are, are, are provoked um, and stimulated to stay online, stay in front of the screen, so as they can be sold ads. That's the, um, that's the reality of the uh, business model of many of these uh, social media companies. And so I, I, I feel like there is a certain amount of responsibility placed on us as the consumer. I mean, if I get someone that's uh, causing me problems on Twitter, I mean, you've got the block button. Um, that's very empowering, it's probably not enough, and let me, uh, let me point out that one of the, one of the threats to journalists that we, uh, that we haven't spoken about is actually online harassment and trolling, and this has become a huge problem um, in democracies, but in particular in, in India and, and, and South Asia, as well as in Western Europe and, and here in North America. Uh, It's a problem that's faced uh, particularly by uh, female journalists who receive horrific threats and harassment online to the point where they can no longer work or they have to get off. Um, We've seen doxing um, where, um, you know, people are are attacked by armies, often trolls, um, uh, bots. with, um, with thousands and thousands of hourly tweets, it makes it really difficult uh, for them. And that's something, that's a, that's a big mess that the uh, social media companies need to address. They are addressing it, but they're not, they're not going fast enough and they're not effective enough. That, that's, that's just one big swamp. Um, and it's something which we are concerned about at the Committee to Protect Journalists because it does have a very, very chilling effect on reporters and their ability to do their jobs. Um,
0: I, 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 one big swamp, I think is a really good way to put it, Robert, and, uh, and maybe the note we have to end on, although I've gotta say, whether you're a journalist or not, the advice of use the block button to,
1: to, to block <laughs> trolls,
0: I think is, is really good advice for just about anyone and to more cautiously look at the retweet button uh, than, than folks who just uh, fire and forget on social media. Uh, Robert Mahoney, director of the Executive Director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, thank you for joining us today, uh, and thank you for your work.
1: It's been a great pleasure, Miles. Thank you for hosting me.
0: Appreciate everyone tuning in to Speaking Up. That is our episode today. We look forward to seeing you next week. We'll talk soon.